Welcome to Savage Minds. I'm your host, Julian Vigo. Today's guest is George Christensen, a former Australian politician, Christian, freedom lover, conservative, blogger, podcaster, journalist, and theologian. I welcome George Christensen to Savage Minds. I know that you are a former politician. You and I very likely have very different views on many other issues, which I don't even care about because I tell you what, you know, one thing that the last two and a half years has taught me is anyone who will disagree with me on all these other issues, but is willing to stand up for my ability to be not locked up and to be able to express myself about not wanting to be locked up is sort of on my team in a very human way, if you know what I mean. And I am, I'm in the same boat, right? You know, because like I found it unbelievable in Australia, I have been, uh, you know, I was a representative for an area that was a coal mining district. So uh, uh, a lot of my time as a politician was um, taken defending the coal mining sector because it was the thing that put the, you know, the food on the table for a lot of my voters. Uh, and so, so my uh, political enemies, as it were, uh, were the, uh, the environmental movement who were trying their darndest to shut down the coal mining sector. Well, after this all happened, what I found was I'm standing shoulder to shoulder in protests in Australia with people who 12 months, uh, 24 months earlier would have been, um, you know, com completely and utterly my political opponent uh, because of the issue around coal mining. And, and now we were shaking hands, we were hugging, we were protesting together. And I had these people coming up to me saying, you know, we used to think you were the devil. Now we think you're our angel. Um, now, I don't want to go too far. I'm not an angel. I'm not a saint. I'm, I was just a politician. But, but the point is that uh, it really has demonstrated what are first order issues. And a first order issue has to be in any Western democracy. It has to be freedom, freedom of speech, freedom of movement, freedom of association. Uh, those are key fundamentals, and without them, there's nothing else. So there's first-order issues and the second-order issues. And quite frankly, uh, your views on any other matter, I'm of the old sort of, um, uh, you know, phrase that they say is from Voltaire. It probably wasn't, you know, uh, I might fight you uh, uh, to the death against what you're saying, but I'll fight to the death for your right to say it. Um uh, but I tell you what, I'm like you. If you're standing up for freedom against this tyranny, and I, I, I don't use that word loosely, it has been tyranny. It has been tyranny. If you're standing up against it, then you're on my team. Yes, and tyranny is a word that keeps coming up in conversations, in much news analysis on this subject. And mm. this all started to kick off at the end of January, both in your country and here where early COVID cases were discovered. The government never thought to shut down airports, however. Isn't that funny? No, let's lock humans up in cages. Yeah. In Australia, they did, can I say, uh, they, they did shut down the airports. And look, um, you said something interesting before, because Italy was right at the, uh, at the forefront of all of this, second only to China, of course. Um, but... Uh, uh, you know, immediately we suspended flights from China 
and then I think from Italy and then a number of other countries. And uh, look, I supported that uh, because that seemed to be common sense. We didn't know what the hell this was. Uh, COVID-19 or coronavirus out of Wuhan. Uh, we didn't know how deadly it was going to be, although there were obviously places like the Imperial College who were telling us it was going to result in, you know, mass deaths, that this is going to be, you know, a, a reoccurrence of the of the bubonic plague, the Black Death or something like that. And I, like you, I was one of those people who were pretty fearful about this. You know, I was watching what the mainstream media was feeding to us. Uh, I was hearing how serious uh, this was from health authorities, the government that I was a member of. Um, and, and I thought to myself, well, you know, yes, we've got to take precautions. So I started advising people, look, you know, do this, do that, and, you know, wash your hands and, uh, you know, keep 1.5 metres apart and all the rest of the, the, the stuff that we now know is just um, uh, nonsense because it didn't work. Uh, but anyway, uh, uh, you know, the, 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 the point is it probably took me a little bit longer than you to realise that this was not right. Now, I had a couple of people who were whispering here almost from the get-go that that what was going on wasn't right um and uh, i didn't want to listen to them to start with after about a month maybe a month and a half uh i started to listen because i thought well i thought there was going to be lots of deaths i mean we actually despite the fact we shut down airports we got this virus in australia and it started to spread and then the deaths didn't eventuate. And then someone sent me a paper that was published in the World Health Organization's bulletin by Dr. John Ioannidis, which um, you had to sift through it a bit. But at the end of the day, he told us what the infection fatality ratio is dating back to April 2020. The infection fatality ratio, uh, which any epidemiologist will tell you is a much better uh, judge of the severity of a virus than, um, than a case fatality ratio. And this guy was newbie stuff. He said it was 0.27%. So in other words, at the height of the pandemic, you know, the, the, the fact is that you had a 99.73% chance of, actually, I've said that figure wrong, Nine, you know, an over 99% chance of surviving it. Um, yeah, two... 2.73% or 0.27% chance of dying. Um, so, uh, you know, it wasn't what it was cracked up to be. And I suddenly completely flipped, completely flipped. Um, you know, we've made a mistake. Uh, we've got to end all this nonsense. We've got to stop the lockdowns. Uh, you know, but the more that I read, uh, the more red-pilled I became. Uh, because even things that I uh, probably thought were good measures at the start, like wearing masks or mandates to wear masks, I suddenly realised this is complete and utter crap as well. This is just almost virtue, sig virtue signalling uh, from the COVID cult. That's what I called it the other day, George. I saw someone, and it happens daily here, you're driving in your car, you see some moron, alone in their car driving with a mask and i said yeah, oh my nuts. god this is the COVID version of preferred pronouns it's insane yeah.
Yeah, look, good, 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 good luck to them, but they're suffering from some form of psychosis, uh, without a doubt, uh, because irrational behaviour like that uh, really uh, does come down to some form of mental uh, illness or or insanity, and uh, that's been that's been um, highlighted by uh, one of the um, uh, clinical psychologist professors uh, over there in Belgium, in the University of Ghent, Dr. Matthias Desmet who uh, says we're going through a mass formation event, and it is quite clear his hypothesis is correct. I mean, there is not this much irrationality amongst the populace and, I got to say, through some of the political elites uh, without a rationale, and that is a very good rationale. But I think it is but part of the rationale. Look, as a former politician, I can tell you the one thing that... that that any political figure likes is to wield power. And you wield power when you present to people a great fear. And, and COVID was a great fear. Um, I don't think it is anymore to most sane people. Uh, and the number of them are increasing daily. Uh, but, but, uh, but still, politicians and others, bureaucrats, technocrats, use that to wield the kind of power that they never, ever had before. I mean, in Australia, we had uh, an entire apartment down. The people kept inside that apartment were virtually prisoners, in, not virtually, they were prisoners in their own home. Some tried to leave and were arrested. Um, we had entire suburbs where there were curfews put on grown adults. You couldn't leave your house after a certain time at night, I mean, um, if if you went out in uh, in the city of Melbourne, and I think it was the case in Sydney too, uh, had to be going out for a reason. It was like you had to uh, be within a certain distance of your home. Or outside that distance, well, you're in trouble. You had to be going out for a purpose, like medical treatment or shopping, or uh, and the shopping. I got to tell you, the police started questioning. Well, what are you going to shop for? Um, you know, to work out whether it was essential or non-essential shopping. Um, it uh, happened here too. Ex Crazy. Exercise. Exercise was allowed for an hour a day. I mean, uh, even like, you know, I, I, I abide by the old adage that, you know, uh, my home is my castle. Um, and, and anyone's home, it's not for the government to say, uh, you know, what, what, what should go on in your home, of course, as long as it's not... Uh, uh, violent or, uh, or, or or criminal activity, but like it, limiting the number of people that could enter a house. What the hell? Like, you know, and how how society accepted this as as something that was completely and utterly normal and rational is beyond me. And um, look, you know. To the victor go the spoils. I don't know. Maybe in a hundred years' time, they'll look back on this and they'll either be calling it uh, the great, um, the great COVID panic, uh, or they'll be calling it uh, the great plague. Um, you know, uh, and it just really depends on who's going to write the history books here about this event. At the moment, all of those still wielding um, power, mostly not all of them, mostly those who are wielding power all around the world are still locked hard and fast to this narrative that um, COVID was such a super deadly occurrence that we had to take all of these measures. 
as I said, I think there's more to it than that. There's more to it than just that. Well, you and I had a similar trajectory. In fact, a lot of guests on the show, I had Matthias Desmond on the show as well, because what you've just said sort of sums up what is going on here. We were rational at the beginning. Only a fool would have laughed at the early days of stay inside, don't go out, because you you can't know that what you're being told is a lie. So yeah. I too was like, wash up. I wrote on Facebook, everyone, you're going to get this news about this very serious pandemic that's approaching your shores. Please read up. I was like that. But a month later, when I'm saying to people, this is not what we were told it was. Well, mm. last month you said that. And I said, yes, because I'm human. I take in new information and I base my judgments upon this new information. And the information yeah. is that this is not the plague. As you mentioned, John Ioannidis, he was a beacon in the tunnel for me, along with I had also two of the great Barrington creators here speaking to these men. I sort of came out of my own, like, it's very easy to get caught in this whirlwind of hatred on social media where you're being told yeah. you're murdering people and shit. Excuse yeah. me. Here. And yeah, so, granny killer, granny killer. Yeah, that was what they were throwing around in Australia. And like you mentioned early on in April of 2020, Yonidas had a very low infection fatality rate, which you said was 0.2%. He estimated it to be between 1.2 and 2%, which was later then confirmed in the Santa Clara study as even lower, 0.02% to 0.4%. So that space of possible infection rates. Mm. It has an all metric score of 4.324, which would be nudging up close to the top 20 if this was a journal article in the sense of the Santa Clara study is quite a strong study. And people were citing mm. it even before, when it was in the preprint stage, okay? I had Jay Bhattacharya on the show. Again, he was one of the creators of the Great Barrington yes. Declaration. They took a beating on social media about their views. They were called, you'll laugh at this, but they were called right-wingers, okay? Now, I'm from mm. the left. <laughs> and let me tell you one thing I don't appreciate anymore. I think that these are silly, silly, silly criticisms to make. It's like saying an orange is orange. Well, if someone happens to be a right winger, by the way, both these men were not, but that's beside the point. I think that we've lost the ability to have a, a serious discussion about things. I know you are, but what am I? It's sort of that adult equivalent of what children say to each other. Yeah, but that, ha that has been the case for some time. Uh, sorry to interrupt. That has been the case for some time. I mean, uh, and, and I think that what we're seeing is... Um, yeah, Twitter, uh, to a large degree, I do blame it on Twitter. Uh, Twitter has devolved our, our discussion, our ability to have discussions uh, and have public uh, debates uh, into, into these pithy sort of barbs that people throw at one another. And, um, you know, because all of the, uh, you know, all the media and, and sorry to tell you, I'm a you know, postgraduate uh, degree holder as well, also academia, um, you know, that they, they jumped on Twitter and um, and it's sort of become this new form of, of, of high culture. You just, uh, you know, you don't discuss issues. You, you, you throw out pejoratives um, and, and uh, it just goes back to the whole thing. You're granny killers. I mean, that was the, 
the the thing to put it down. And then and then when we started questioning uh, uh, the the so called vaccines, it was immediately the pejorative of anti vaxxer. You know, there was no nuanced discussion about efficacy, about safety, about any of that. It was just if you had a concern, if you were even against a mandate, you were an anti vaxxer. Uh, and it was a dumbing down of the conversation, quite deliberate, obviously, because um, once you can stigmatise a certain group um, as as granny killers, as anti-vaxxers, you you are establishing a scapegoat. You are establishing an outlet where people can uh, vent their frustrations. And uh, and boy oh boy, did they ever in Australia! I mean, I've never seen such visceral hatred displayed. Um, from one Australian to their fellow Australian then during this episode. Um, you know, literally you would see people uh, near frothing at the mouth telling someone uh, that they hope they get COVID or that their family members get COVID and they suffer a horrible death. That was this kind of uh, denunciation that come about if you express concern. My father relayed to me an incident um, he was talking to uh, a couple of people, one person who he knew well, the other person who he didn't know so well. And he, uh, the topic of COVID happened to come up and my father said something that was pretty benign. Um, and I think it was referring to the low number of people who died. And uh, immediately the person he didn't know so well uh, got their back up, went red in the face and started yelling at him. Um, if, if, you think this isn't a problem, then I hope you get it, you know. Um, and that's just madness. As I said, it's a form of psychosis. Uh, and uh, I just keep on going back to Matthias, uh, Matthias, um, Matthias Desmet's uh, theory. I shouldn't call it the theory. It's an observation uh, that we've suffered a form of psychosis. He doesn't like to call it the psychosis, but I think it is um, that, that he calls mass formation. The bigger question is, I also have to wonder if our your and my and other people's reaction who are more skeptical about what's gone on to critical can mm. start with just questioning as you and I did. We're like, one day I just turned and I, wait, we're being locked up for something that's affecting the elderly people upstairs who are breaking lockdown rules nightly, they were, <laughs> and our neighbors were in their 80s. Now, great for them. They were elderly. They were living a very sucky life being locked up all day just like us but mm. differently from us and funnily enough they were like we're having parties every night so they did so <laughs> Good the on. thing is this is that we were browbeaten into accepting these rules then it took mm -hmm. another step as we all saw because around the eu protesting these rules was impossible because they started to bring in rules such as you can't like in Italy, they brought out the rule that you can't protest in the town center. Well, how on that F are you supposed to protest if you can't be visible? Part of the point of a democracy is that not only having the freedom of speech, but being able to be visible in your freedom of speech. I mean, the, the whole idea of democracy isn't that you get to be free in the middle of a woods somewhere. So you hit the nail on the head. We stopped essentially uh, um, your country, my country, many other countries that deployed these tactics. 
actually stop being functioning democracies. Um, you cannot be, or you cannot say you're a democracy, uh, well, you can say you're a democracy, but you're actually not a democracy if you are clamping down on freedom of movement, freedom of speech, and, and freedom to protest peacefully. Um, you know, uh, when, when the rationale for doing that is just not there, and it wasn't there. Um, so, uh, look, I, 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 I do wonder, actually, today, and this is how much that I've been red-pilled, I've gone from being a member of parliament, I'm no longer a member of parliament in my country, I, I, I stood down, uh, particularly because of frustrations over all of this, uh, this issue, I, 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 I did not... Um, I stood down from my seat in Parliament. I could have easily won that seat again, uh, whether I was with the governing party or not. I did attempt to run for the Senate for uh, another uh, political party, but I wasn't successful in getting elected there because there's a bit more freedom in the Senate. Um, but but anyway, my, my, my point is I've gone from being a member of Parliament to someone who openly questions whether my country is actually a true democracy anymore. I think all of us should be asking this, and I'll tell you why. And I think you'll agree with me here, because these are thoughts that have come up since lockdown, and it's gone far beyond lockdown. I'm just going to throw out a few of these. In my youth, I just thought, oh, the UN, what a great organization, and oh, these great, oh, whatever. Skip to what happened in the 90s in the former Yugoslavia. Skip to the protests that were pretty much whitewashed. I was living in New York at the time. NPR was covering it. But then somehow, as soon as the bombing started by NATO, all criticism was off the board. And I noticed that shift. But again, youth, whatever. Skip to the pandemic. And I'm just throwing out a few examples because there's many between those two time frames. The way that, yeah, the the WHO, uh, uh, Fauci, who? Who We have this saying in America, uh, who died and made you king? Well, I mm. want to know how in a democracy we have INGOs, international NGOs, we have these transnational corporations and, and or organizations coming in to direct power. The WHO, what the actual F, as they say, how is it that our countries, around the West especially, because a lot of non-Western countries had the chutzpah to push back on certain things. And you saw this in Mexico, where the Mexican government was quite aware that if we put people into conditions of starvation, this will not bode well for them or for us. So we've got all these organizations sort of stepping in and supplanting our own governments because our own governments let them, right? And and this has made me really angry about so many other issues because when you start thinking about the COVID situation, you start to recall other moments in history where this was allowed to happen. I'm someone who was working in Haiti after the 2010 earthquake, saw what the Clinton Foundation did with the $10 billion raised for that country and the theft of that money and the way in which Haitians Haitians were completely dispossessed of their own political autonomy. I went into parliament and watched proceedings and it was phenomenal, George, to watch how the UN and other NGOs have such a foothold, a stranglehold on that country that in the 1950s was one of the wealthiest countries of the Caribbean. I just think that these are all related issues and yet you and I and many others 
were at the behest. Bizarrely, how did Anthony Fauci come to be a voice in your country <laughs> or in the EU? But yet he was, right? Yeah, he was. Uh, he was definitely listened to. Look, there's a, there's a few takeouts, I think, from what you've just said there. I mean, one thing that I think um, straight up is uh, I, I, I don't have that same experience of you about how the UN had a stranglehold on uh, on Haiti uh, or any other country for that matter. Um, but uh, still, I, th I think there's a few takeouts. Firstly, I want to say it's interesting you juxtaposed a war um, in, in Yugoslavia to the pandemic uh, because speaking to uh, an historian and academic here in Australia that I know, Dr. Stephen Shavura, I asked him, have you seen anything like this in, in contemporary history or, or, or you know, beyond? And he said, uh, well, the only uh, parallel that I can think of in Australia's history that we have to what's going on now, the cultural moment, I guess, that's going on now, is World War One. And I said, uh, that seems to be like a, a very bizarre comparison. Explain yourself. And he said, well, look, um, during World War One, Australia was a fledgling nation and we were still sort of part of the empire. Uh, and so World War One, there was a push on to enlist and do it for, uh, you know, God, king and country. And, uh, and people took that very, very seriously. And there were those who were questioning the war, um, uh, such as a, a major Catholic archbishop in Australia and then a lot of Catholics. And uh, they were attacked mercilessly. Uh, they, 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 were, uh, they were attacked in the press. They were attacked in public. Uh, they were seen almost as traitors. And then there were those who decided for whatever reason, uh, whether they were only sons, whether they were, uh, uh, whether they had children, uh, whether they uh, just didn't want to fight, uh, whatever reason, um, they, were, they were also attacked as cowards uh, in popular culture uh, to the point where, where um, they were actually people that were known to have not signed up were sent white feathers and 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 that stayed with them that stigma stayed with them for their life and he put the parallel uh to world war one in australia's history from what's going on now and how he explained it was that the people who received the white feathers they are like us um you know the people who questioned the effort because a lot of the language that's been deployed around the pandemic has been the language of war. We're in a war against COVID-19. And so uh, we have been the traitors against the cause, you know, and, uh, and, and so that's why people have gotten angry. Uh, it sort of explains it. So, so this war uh, comparison, when you, when you think about that, it really does tend to make a degree of sense and it explains why a few things are going on. But um, also you've mentioned these transnational organisations, uh, the UN being one of them, but the one that I really think that uh, we need to put more scrutiny on is the World Economic Forum. Um, now, I don't know how far down this rabbit hole that you've, you've gone, but uh, the World Economic Forum seems to be... Um, calling a lot 
of the shot slightly, and it is the one uh, body that seems to tie a lot of different things together. I see they've actually uh, come into some uh, agreement or partnership with the United Nations the other day, but uh, from uh, the very beginning, they wanted uh, Klaus Schwab, the founder of the WEF, wanted to uh, use COVID as some form of... Uh, of a change in the international order, the Great Reset. And um, suddenly you saw a whole heap of political leaders around the world parroting the lines that were coming out of the, uh, the World Economic Forum, you know, build back better. It became the slogan globally. Um, and, and if you go through and trawl through their website, uh, which is a vast array of material on the WF website, um, but they pushed for lockdowns, uh, they pushed for vaccine mandates, they actually put up articles there which uh, outline why, why a vaccine mandate isn't a breach of human rights and or all the rest of it. Um, so they've been setting an agenda and look, to think that they don't have some form of power when every year uh, political leaders, um, major corporations, uh, their CEOs and board members, celebrities, um, Hollywood types, news media, all go to this one big gathering. It's like uh, Woodstock for the globalist elites. Um, and if you think that that, that doesn't create a, a, um, a conduit for influence, then I've got a bridge to sell you in Sydney. <laughs> I've heard a lot of people being quite critical about the WEF. And I wanted, I actually had intended to ask you about this. I've been to their website. I've noticed their meetings over the years. Scroll to that part of their website that says, mm. our partners. It reads, World Economic yeah. Forum partners are leading global companies, developing solutions to the world's greatest challenges. They are the driving force behind the forum's programs. It's ad copy that could sell toothpaste so far because it, it says nothing, what I've just read. Yeah, yeah, Our partners right. engage in forum platforms to shape the future, accessing networks and experts to ensure strategic decision-making on the most pressing world issues. Again, this mm. could be a Miss America speech. I'm sorry to say there's nothing, <laughs> yeah. there's no content here. I want peace for the world, but you go to their partners. That's the scary part. And I invite oh, our yeah. listeners to go to the WE forum. It's called weforum.org. The alphabet soup here of partners is huge. You can't even fit a on the page. I have to scroll down yeah, twice right. to see all the a groups, but these are everything. I'm just going to read in order. AP, Muller Maersk, it looks like a Danish uh, company, AARP, ABB, we don't know what these are, Abbott Laboratories, we know what that is, ABN, AMRO, ABSA Group, Accenture, Access Holding. Okay, you start to go through the list, and then if you scroll yeah. to, I'm just going to start reading what I recognize for our listeners. Ajon, Africa Finance Corporation, uh, Amazon, Amcor, Analog Devices, AGP Asset, APIS Partners Group. Alibaba. Exactly. So we're talking about the wealthiest companies on the planet, investment corporations, mm -hmm. medical companies, insurance, Allianz, Amanat Holdings, Axis Bank, AXA. That's just the A's. But I invite people to go and take a look for yourselves <laughs> because this is, you know, what we're seeing is this coming together 
of, well, the word we've only heard since Russia invaded Ukraine, oligarchs. And now oligarchs in, in, you know, existed long ago, and we yes. know this. But somehow CNN and all the other neoliberal media have discovered oligarchs since this spring. <laughs> this is very uh, troubling when we are getting marching orders from the WHO, Anthony Fauci, and there's another story to be told there. I don't know if you've read the biography of Fauci that came out earlier this year. I did, I did indeed. Okay, well, you can speak to that because it's very, very crazy to me that we are getting our orders from people who have interests in big pharma, in investments mm. into big pharma, and then governments and media that are supporting each other. And again, I'm a journalist and I came into journalism from academia. One of the things that really shocked me about my entry into this was I was really taken aback by the fact that I had to watch where I pitched stories. And I found this out during lockdown, it repeated all over. I couldn't publish where I had been publishing, questioning these mandates, writing about the mental health impacts, that even if you were 100% on board with this, even if this had been diphtheria or the plague, and people were dying at massive rates, even if that had been the case, George, there would have always been deteriorating mental health effects, no matter what. There we are with the world being in the hands of multinational corporations, big tech, because we have to talk about who was booted from mm -hmm. Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, et cetera, all the mm -hmm. voices that have been censored around this issue, the fake news that's allowed to proliferate. Meanwhile, Facebook will say, this post seems to be fake news. Please check, <laughs> da, 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 and you're, and meanwhile, who is well, fact-checking for Facebook, but NATO's partner? It's a yeah. NATO organization. Well, you've, look, you know, I, I don't disagree with anything that you've just said. Um, I even saw, just on the last point uh, the other day, an editorial cartoon that had been fact-checked as misleading. And I'm thinking, goodness me, we're now fact-checking uh, satire. We're now fact-checking cartoons and, and, and labelling that as fake news. Uh, it is really, really jump the shark uh, and and Facebook sadly seems to be the worst of it but there's a common denominator here you talked about um, uh, a lot of the uh, the major media corporations even left-leaning ones that uh, that wouldn't publish things you talked about social media outlets that have been censoring stuff uh, the common denominator is um, they're big corporations. They are big, big corporations. And I bet if you could scroll down and have a look at that list that um, that you talked about, the Partners of the World Economic Forum, that you would find uh, Meta on there, you would find Twitter on there, you would find um, whoever owns The Guardian on there, you would find uh, whoever owns um, The Washington Post, uh, for instance, or uh, the, the, the New York Times, uh, they'd all be on there, CNN, uh, the rest of them. And so uh, uh, I think that, um, that there is a sense that, uh, that the editorial narrative is being driven by these major corporate media holders. And uh, the editorial narrative, like we like to talk now about the democratisation of the media because, like, you've got a podcast, I've got a podcast, uh, there's... there's um, you know, a whole heap of other voices out there, but they still hold 
a fair degree of sway in society. And, um, and so their editorial agenda controls the cultural agenda. George, I've just looked up the names you said. They're yeah. all there. Merck all and there. Pfizer are there. Yeah, Procter and Gamble. <laughs> yeah, they're all there. So, um, you know, I, I, I think that uh, the Australian media basically copied the American media uh, and there was also our own editorial stances that were uh, being put uh, on things by, by, the, by, the corporate, uh, by, by the corporate media. I think actually Soros owns uh, a significant portion of one of, our, uh, one of our main media outlets in Australia. Um, and also Rupert Murdoch owns a fair degree of others, but he also owns Fox. That's the bizarre thing. Fox is this outlier. We've got Sky News also in Australia that is like Fox News. Um, and I think that to a degree, it's just playing to the audience that watches it, but also uh, they will go up to a line and then they won't cross it. Um, for instance, in Sky News here in Australia, again, that's our version of Fox News. Um, I was, was, was invited onto the program when I was a politician. I think the last time I was invited on, the, uh, the host of the show told me, look, can you uh, stay away from the issue of, of vaccines? We really don't want to touch on that. So um, that was, uh, and, and also one of the hosts uh, that's on that, uh, on that TV show or on that TV channel told me that... Um, that he had got that same memo from the bosses that they weren't to uh, do anything that really seriously questioned uh, efficacy around the vaccines. So uh, even even that's tainted. Uh, and look, I've sort of lost track of where I was going with that, but I, I think that yeah, what I was trying to say is that the the real reason that um, people have been shut down and silenced is um, because of big corporations. And I, I recall where I was going. So with the World Economic Forum, and I guess just the, the zeitgeist at the moment, we've got a big, uh, big government uh, all around the world, whether it's global government, governments such as the United Nations or the World Health Organization or national governments that are getting closer and closer to big corporations uh, where there's almost this fusion in terms of, uh, of who's implementing what policies. Um, and, and so uh, I, 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 as a conservative, I, I do often harken back to the, uh, the hoary old pejoratives of, of leftists or Marxists, uh, um, but I do see some degree of socialism in what uh, governments are trying to achieve uh, all around the world. Um, but the bizarre thing, it's being fused with corporatism, crony capitalism or oligarchy, as you've called it. Uh, and you know what? Uh, we've had an experience of that in, in, in history. It, it was in your country where the government, which had um, some socialist tendencies, fused itself with corporations, and we called it fascism. It happened in Germany as well. So I am growing incredibly worried that there is this global movement more and more towards fascism in the true, uh, in the true meaning of the term. Uh, 
it won't be the kind that we've experienced before, but nonetheless, it will be a form of totalitarianism. And the only way we can avoid that, uh, that future, or at least dampen it down, is by continuing to speak out and call it out. You're listening to Savage Minds, and we hope you're enjoying the show. Please consider subscribing. We don't accept any money from corporate or commercial sponsors, and we depend upon listeners and readers just like you. Now, back to our show. I write about science quite a bit. I write about it in terms of the gender debate, the invention of of gender identity disorder, the whole idea that today, if you don't say that humans can magically change sex like Nemo, then Mm. you can feasibly lose your job. And we've seen recent court challenges to this in the UK. Thankfully, Mm. science is victorious thus far. But I'll tell Mm. you something that's concerned me. And I am in a group. I'm in a long COVID support group. I got in it saying I was very transparent, saying I'm a journalist. I'd like to follow this group. Let me tell you, long COVID seems to have no universal definition. And just like COVID was reported, (laughs) COVID was reported as this horrible disease that's going to wipe us all out, right? Well, long COVID is defined as this kind of catch call to describe individuals whose symptoms last more than a few weeks or months after the onset of having had COVID-19. Okay, now having a cold, a flu, even chickenpox or any other kind of disease that Mm. we, many of us have had in our lives, can leave you if you get these diseases, not as a 14 year old, but you get them in your 50s, 60s. Of course, even the common cold can take you weeks. I know people who take weeks to get over these things way before the pandemic. Okay. Mm. Now, in these groups I'm in, I've noticed something very strange. And it's been a politicization around not only long COVID, but dare you say this happened recently. What should I do? I'm feeling this and this and this. And as someone who practices yoga, who's who's taught yoga, I said, well, I think you should maybe consider getting some exercise daily and yoga would be a great place to start. I recommended certain types of yoga. Mm -hmm. Do you know what happened to me, George? Oh my God, I got (laughs) piled on. (laughs) Why? Why? What was the reason for that? Is it, is it because, because you expressed that you might be able to just, uh, clear up what's going on with exercise. Is that why they, mm-hmm. they... Mm-hmm. oh, wow. This is it. In fact, if you do not follow the narrative that this is an <laughs> illness, if you do not follow the narrative that no amount of exercise or diet change or sunlight will help me, then uh, is... you will be piled And this is something that really shocked me because I said, look, I am not denying what you've just written, that you're feeling ABCD. What I am saying is something quite different. We could be talking about any other condition. I would say the same to you. Mm. Anyways, that was a, a big fail. I, I got to say that um, I haven't ever gone here before, but I got to say I've always been a bit skeptical hearing about this long COVID. I had a um, a friend of mine, uh, a mentor actually, who uh, who contracted COVID over in the UK. Um, uh, he told me that he had, uh, I mean, I don't think the term was bandied around then, but he told me that he had something which people would call long COVID now, and that was that he was um, 
he, he got fuzzy sometimes, he called it. And I said, what do you mean you got fuzzy? He said, oh, I, I just would forget things and, uh, you know, do that. Well, you know, you're 72. Uh, at that age, it's called everyone that suffers from that. They meet at the bar, you know, like, um, <laughs> you, you know, it's just like anything can now be shoved into the shoebox and uh, we'll call it long COVID just because you had COVID. Uh, have you had COVID, Julian? Could I ask? Oh, sure, you can ask. And I can say, quite honestly, I think I have. I had January of 2020, and I'm someone who never gets sick. Uh, I don't get colds and flus and such. I, I went for almost 20 years without any of it. Anyways, 2020, all of us here, my family and I, we got sick. We didn't know. You know, we just assumed it was mm. a bad cold. But I have no idea. And yeah. I, uh, I masked up. Uh, of course, we were forced to do the Darth Vader thing for the better half mm -hmm. of the last two and a yeah. half years. The government here has two rules, one for foreigners, one for those of us living here. And this mm -hmm. is a human rights violation if I've ever seen one. And I do hope there, there are being challenges taking up within the EU court system to address this because this has happened in many countries where in winter, because they use you know lockdown in winter as an excuse to keep the numbers down, but as soon as tourists come over, boom, and even during the winter, tourists were allowed to go around without the same kinds of protections that we were expected to have. But that's another issue in a sense. I mean, it's related, but it's all, it speaks to the larger problem of the fictions around these rules. And let's look at them lockdowns, loss of liberty, vaccines, the damn vaccine passports. I, because I'm over 50, am expected to get a vaccine. I was sent, I had to sign off on a letter with my post person because I've been given a fine for not taking a vaccine that's not even up to date with the latest strains. I mean, it's, it's dumb and dumber, really. We oh, need wow. to have a dumb well, and dumber, the COVID version. That is the case in Italy, that if you don't, uh, I think I did read this some time ago, but some of these things uh, just pass into fading memory because you see more and more crazy every day. Um, but you're telling me that in Italy, that the deal is that if you don't have this vaccine and you're aged over 50, that you will get fined. Yes. Oh, wow. And I have zero intent of taking it. Not because I am not even my kids have all the vaccines to go to school. And let's just say this and bracket this, even if I were what people call a traditional anti-vaxxer, that we can discuss. But I am not. I, I have written, I wrote a piece about the outbreak in Disneyland uh, several years ago because parents chose not to vaccinate their children. I think there are reasons to vituperate people who refuse vaccines that can be a public health disaster but let's let's get back to the fact that COVID is not what we were told it was i'm pretty sure statistics would show that people are dying at higher rates of many other diseases malaria where was the who's concern for people dying of malaria you know uh half my family more than half my family is in india i've had cousins get malaria well, no, and it's and then let's get back to the fact that the average vaccine takes between 10 and 12 years to develop. This is coming from Johns Hopkins, by the way. This is not your underground yeah. tinfoil hat Reddit forum. When we know that vaccines take 10 to 12 years to develop and you and I and many others are saying, whoa, this is too fast. 
Uh, and I'm not even going to go about the mRNA business. Mm. I'm just saying in terms of a timetable, I'm not comfortable <laughs> with that. And in terms yeah, of a yeah. timetable, plus the fact that I don't, want to take a vaccine because I don't think I'm still within that demographic. You look at people in my age range, still we're living. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they're not just trying to push it. They're doing it. Um, so, so, so uh, there are many things that you've said there that need to be unpacked. Um, one thing I, I just want to ask, are you aware of uh, a paper that was published? Oh, uh, it would have been published probably late last year in a journal called Toxicology Reports. Now, there were several independent researchers and also senior um, uh, medical academics uh, from around the world, uh, some in Romania, some actually in Italy. I think um, Darja Kanduk uh, from the Department of Biosciences in uh, the University of Bari or Bari in Italy, um, we had uh, people out of Greece, uh, researchers out of Greece and academics out of Greece and Moscow uh, that were involved in this. And it was called, Why Are We Vaccinating Children Against COVID-19? So that was the name of the paper. Now they did uh, a thorough analysis of uh, vaccine efficacy, vaccine risk. And this was their conclusion. A novel best-case scenario cost-benefit analysis showed very conservatively that there are five times the number of deaths attributable to each inoculation versus those attributable to COVID-19 in the most vulnerable 65-plus demographic. The risk of death from COVID-19 decreases drastically as age decreases, and the longer-term effects of the inoculations on lower age groups will increase their risk-benefit ratio perhaps substantially. Now, uh, no, no prizes for guessing that this paper went down the memory hole. Uh, within a very short period of time, it was jumped upon by, uh, I think, actually even the founder of this, uh, of this publication, and they retracted it. Uh, not okay. the not not the writers, but the the journal actually retracted it. Yes. And the basis on which they retract, retracted it was was this: the use of key terminology, specifically the key term inoculation, diverges from common use, indicating clear level or clear evidence of bias. So, in other words, because they said inoculation too many times rather than vaccination. Um, they withdrew the paper, not because it was wrong or because they found any other substantial fault. They just said that they're biased. Well, what about papers that come out in favour of vaccination? Should we retract them as well because they're biased? So, so um, you know, there is reason to be worried about particularly mRNA vaccines. Uh, reason alone for anyone to just say, no, I'm not wanting it without any sort of of, of retribution or penalty or fine, um, losing their job is what happened in Australia, being restricted from attending social gatherings is what happened in Australia. Um, you know, the reason, reason alone should have just been uh, this vaccine is experimental. This vaccine has been issued provisionally or under emergency use uh, provisions uh, this vaccine has got no long-term safety data. And the more and more we become aware of it, this vaccine has incredibly waning efficacy. Um, and this vaccine now has known side effects 
known adverse side effects. People that affects have a younger died. demographic. That's the crazy and, thing. And kids have died. Kids have died. Right. Uh, toddlers have died from this vaccine. That again, uh, the fact checkers will go into overdrive to say that that is nonsense. That it is unproven, but you just have to look through uh, VAERS and VAERS can be incredibly complicated to go through, but there are listings on VAERS um, which have not been debunked by anyone that say that children have died. Um, one that I can pull up uh, right now, a, um, a one-year-old boy from Florida uh, back in April of 2021, uh, received a shot two days later, died after going into a seizure and having his body temperature severely increased. And that was a shot of the Moderna virus, of the vaccine. So, um, uh, you know, now in Australia, our version of the Food and Drug Administration, uh, which we call the Therapeutic Goods Authority or Therapeutic Goods Administration, has just uh, approved the use of of uh, uh, I think it's Moderna um, in children aged six months to five years. It still has to go through one more hoop in Australia, and that is going through what we call our technical advisory group on immunisations. But to date, they've been completely useless in stopping anything. Uh, they haven't stopped a single thing, even though we knew that the risk of myocarditis was great in the teen cohort. Uh, they signed off on uh, on you know having teenagers jabbed with that, and I got to tell you, I know of a mother of a young woman who died. She died suddenly of of uh, heart failure, and it was quite clearly caused by the vaccine, even though they're trying to cover that up. Um, you know, so there's been consequences from this, and I got to say that employers and governments alike uh, uh, should be held responsible for. Uh, these deaths because they've mandated it or they've coerced elements of the population into this. Well, of course, to play devil's advocate here, we're going to face, of course, an uphill battle to have any evidence for any of what you said, because even before the pandemic, it was very difficult to prove vaccine injury in any yes. country. The United States set up a department for this. Um, the reality is that the argument will always come down to coincidence, yeah, not yeah. correlation, right? So yeah. let's get to the what what the law says. What does the law say in Australia and the Geneva Convention? Because you know, <laughs> the Geneva Convention is to me is something I keep thinking about because I kept thinking during lockdown we would have more rights if we were prisoners of war to movement. I mean. You know, mandated exercise. We didn't like, unlike in Australia, <laughs> the people who got exercise rights were people with dogs. There were days yeah. and weeks when we didn't have that right, and I'm I'm furious about it. Yeah, we should be. You should be. Uh, and you said, what does the law say in Australia? Well, uh, we have um, guidelines that are set down regarding immunisations. There's actually a handbook on immunisations, and it actually says in that handbook, I can't recall it verbatim, but uh, it basically says that there's got to be informed consent and that informed consent in regards to vaccinations uh, uh, has to include, um, uh, well, well, must not include any form of duress. So um, 
you know, the, the, the vaccine mandates where people have basically had the metaphorical gun held to their head and said, well, you either take the jab or you lose your job. I think that the uh, a growing number, perhaps the bulk of the Australian populace, is not in the mood for any more in the way of, of deprivation of liberties. Um, but, you know, we've been the poster child for... Uh, for the world, Bill Gates has held us up and given us the gold star. Uh, you know, we were the one country that uh, dealt with this pandemic the right way, apparently. And, uh, you know, uh, if every country did what Australia did, uh, took away all those rights and liberties, masked them up, jabbed them up and, uh, and, and kept them at home like good little boys and girls, then the world wouldn't have had a pandemic problem, according to people like Bill Gates. But now uh, the chickens have come home to roost because... Uh, guess what? Australia now has a huge number of cases of COVID. It is um, spreading a lot, again, with the low infection fatality rate, probably even lower than what Dr. John Ioannidis uh, stated back in April 2020, because, uh, you know, we're, we're now into a, a different and a less severe um, variant of, of the virus. Um and so uh, we're having all of these cases and uh, the technocrats, the health bureaucrats are getting antsy. They're out there saying um, we need to go into lockdown again. They're out there saying we need to mask mandate again. They're out there saying things like people should stay home uh, uh, and work from home rather than go to work. Um, you know, but the politicians thus far seem to be rejecting uh, some of this. Um, uh, you know, I don't know how long that's going to hold for. Uh, I, su I strongly suspect that we are going to have, uh, at least in one jurisdiction or more, some form of, of mask mandate. In fact, we have, uh, I think, got a form of mask mandate that has returned in some jurisdictions for indoors already. Um, so it, it's there, but uh, I don't think the populace has the stomach to go back to hard lockdowns, uh, to go back to all of these impositions, uh, you know. But um, the point is, uh, here's a country that all of the globalists and people like Bill Gates said uh, did the right thing by depriving people of liberties. Hell, we even threw people into detention centres, um, you know, if they posed some problem. It was... People returning from overseas were put into a detention centre for two weeks. And not just people returning from overseas, there was one woman in the Northern Territory of Australia who was thrown into this um, because she actually uh, didn't tell the truth about being a close contact of someone who had COVID. Uh, so, so people just picked up from their homes and put into a detention centre for two weeks. That's the kind of thing that happened in my country and yet it did nothing to stop the spread of the virus. It is worse now than it has ever been. But having said that, as I said, low infection fatality ratio, the vast majority of cases are sore throats. And with kids, the vast majority of cases are runny noses. Uh, you don't blow up liberty. You don't blow up freedom. Uh, you don't sacrifice your bodily autonomy for a sore throat or a runny nose. Well, also, one thing we haven't discussed in our societies, and this is something that must be discussed, I'm afraid to say, is a kind of population triage. In what right 
does anyone's grandparent have more freedom to live longer, to eke out another week or month or year than the rest of us? And I, I think people might say, oh, that's cruel. It's not. This is what happens no, in a hospital all the time. You get 10 patients. There's one doctor on staff. You get 10 patients. Who do you see first? The person with a, a broken ulna or the person with a head trauma? So mm. I feel like we've been put in the position of being lied to. We've been told that the ulna is a head trauma. We've been told that if we mm. don't treat the ulna first, we're all going to die of head trauma. And that's the lie. That's the biggest lie yeah. ever. Because, and I say this, being someone who's been told by my government that I'm not only going to be fined for not taking the vaccine, but the subtext here is that I'm a danger to the health system, that I could drain the health system. Wait a sec. I'm living in the country of cigarettes and alcohol. Where did this government come from all of a sudden where you had everyone 20 years ago smoking and still drinking now mm. a lot of the smokers even during lockdown switch to these other types of cigarettes which are dangerous in another way but whatever we're not seeing this kind of concern about heart disease obesity no this is yeah. a politicized mandate to lock people up. I don't believe for one second this has been about health. And I'm not a conspiracy theorist. If you really mm. want to make something about health, convince me of that. Start with mm. governments offering free exercise and gym to people who make under X amount of money a year. That never happened. Talk about granny and grandpa. Where is the Meals on Wheels for elderly living in rural areas that cannot be serviced, that do not have driving licenses to get to the local mm. market? Because those yeah. people are the ones that are being visited twice a day by their family members who bring to them COVID. Okay? Mm. This didn't happen. It didn't happen in any country, to my knowledge. None. So where's that happening? Not. Where are the recommendations for people to lose weight? The interesting thing, you mentioned the Meals on Wheels. The, the Meals on Wheels thing is something that uh, I actually suggested to the Deputy Prime Minister in our country who was then the Deputy Prime Minister uh, when the pandemic first broke out. So uh, great minds think alike. Oh, this is great to know. Yeah, we saw none of this, George. We saw this is all no. BS from the top down because what we know is that I had a, a, someone tell me on Facebook, eat mushrooms. They're very good in combating viruses. So I did. I mean, this was an immunologist yeah. who told me this. Where were the recommendations to change diet, to start eating these kinds of foods like mushrooms and others? You would have been called an anti-vaxxer if you started suggesting that sort of stuff. <laughs> and we didn't see yeah. doctors uh, coming from all these organizations that are rubber stamping vaccines. We didn't see them saying, but wait, you're locking people up from sunlight, sunlight, which is yeah, no excellent. D. Oh, my God. Yeah. So, you know, you went into Ooh. lockdown for the sixth time last August. That right? was in Melbourne. Yeah. 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 And then in Sydney, Sydney siders were restricted to five kilometers of their home. That's right. Again, last August. And then again, last August, those same people living in Sydney were permitted to establish single bubbles with a friend. Oh, my God. <laughs> this is this is nuts. Yeah. And then Melbourne. This is the government, government regulating uh, basically. Um, you know, boyfriends and girlfriends being allowed to see each other or partners who live separately 
yep. being able to see each other for rendezvous or, or liaisons. You know, uh, I, I, I got to tell you, I have a great interest in public policy, uh, but I never ever thought the day would come when I saw a government in Australia regulating who can sleep over someone's house. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. and it just shows how far how far we've gone, how far we've degenerated. So tell us then, how do you see this panning out in the end? Because between the WEF and then we haven't even talked about the Great Reset here, but there are a lot of people who will say, oh, this is all conspiratorial talk. Well, mm. I'm one of the people that might have thought this two and a half years ago. I heard mm. people saying things, even in Italy, where they started to foist upon the population, get this, the contactless payment system is something that Italians were not doing three years mm. ago. Well, COVID became that opportunity to get people to do it. Yes. Now, here's the underbelly of that. This wasn't about contactless payment uniquely. It was about mm. the government getting people to register what they earn basically. Yes, that's right. Right. So a lot of people who I thought were conspiracy theorists two and a half years ago, I no longer think that because Mm -hmm. the government had dates, a time frame in which people had to get these little contactless payment machines. That hasn't even been met out by reality in many cases, even in small markets, people are supposed to have these. But anyways, Mm -hmm. we're not seeing anything that we were told in February 2020 today. We're not seeing any of it. We're seeing kids being masked up. We're seeing the mental health effects of this being completely ignored. We're seeing Mm. teachers overwhelmed because kids are completely losing their minds with all this. I know my son has suffered because of this and no one is actually saying we need to stop the madness. People are afraid to speak out. And I find this atrocious because this is a sign of an unhealthy system. This is not democracy. In a democracy, we should not be afraid to speak out. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and look, I, I'm, I'm with you. I think that there are other agendas that have been in play, and that's uh, not conspiracy theory. They've been out and out and saying it. Hell, uh, Klaus Schwab from the World Economic Forum wrote a book on it called uh, COVID-19, The Great Reset. Um, so, uh, you know, the, the story was uh, that, that it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity to change things as to how they want them to be changed. And so um, digital currency, that's uh, one of the things that has been pushed and uh, COVID's been used as an excuse to actually enable that, uh, as you've just outlined. Um, but look, you know, let me let me speculate and theorise for a second here. Um, you've had an event where you, you basically triggered a great degree of fear amongst the populace uh, they accepted, by and large, apart from a few aberrants uh, like us, accepted um, lockdowns. They accepted curfews. They accepted mandating wearing something on their face, which proved absolutely useless. They accepted uh, a situation where if you didn't have a procedure performed, um, you would be restricted from... Uh, restaurants, cafes, bars, museums, social life, basically. Uh, they accepted a situation where you had to carry around a, uh, a, a passport of sorts, a, 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 
this um, this thing on your smartphone uh, that got you into places that actually tracked and traced where you were. All of this happened from COVID. Now, if that was something that um, that was a test to see whether or not the populace would accept that much infringement on their privacy and liberty, I think they passed with flying colours. Um, because there was only a small proportion who were against all of that. Uh, and uh, I, I do fear that we're going to see a lot of this now that it has been tested, whether that's... Um, now, I'm not suggesting that it's been uh, all manufactured to be a test, but I'm suggesting that, um, that opportunists have used the situation to test out whether some of these things uh, will fly publicly. And now that they know that they will, it's a matter of time as to when some of these things get implemented. So we already have the push in Australia for a digital identity system. I hear that in one of the provinces there in Italy, uh, that you guys have got this voluntary social credit system. There's members of parliament in the United Kingdom that are talking about assigning citizens on social media some truth score. Uh, there is all of these bizarre policies that are being uh, basically now touted as like uh, some sort of electorally appealing idea by these elected representatives. Um, and, and I think like, you know, even five years ago, that sort of thing would have been ridiculed as, as dystopian and totalitarian and, you know, a revisitation of Orwell's 1984. But uh, now they're, they're openly, they're not just openly suggesting it, they're actually concocting and beginning to implement these ideas. As I said, we have a digital identity system coming into place in Australia. There's legislation that's already drafted for it. The government is already promoting people voluntarily getting their digital identity. What the end game of all of that is, um, I can only speculate, but it's not going to be good. It's not going to be good. This will be the kind of control that we have never, ever seen before in Western liberal democracies, uh, uh, wielded over us by our governments that are supposed to be there for us. We're not there for them. Uh, but my warriors have articulated before is that we're seeing the fusion of government with oligarchic corporations. And uh, you can bet your bottom dollar that there will be some exchange of information between big corporations and big government. Uh, you know, for instance, Facebook has a lot of data on just about everyone that's on there uh, that they could share with governments. They already do share it. We know that. Uh, you know, there's actually people now that are... Uh, former CIA agents that are working uh, within Facebook, you know, why they would have former intelligence agents uh, running uh, operations inside Facebook is beyond me, but that, that's, that's proven now. There was uh, an expose on that by an independent media outlet in the last uh, few weeks. So, um, you know, we're seeing this fusion. And as I just said, it's not going to end up good for you, me, or anyone else who values privacy, who values freedom. Uh, it really will not. Well, you know, there are people listening, and I'm one of them, in fact, from the past, who thought universal credit, why not? 
the world market is shrinking, the oligarchs are increasing, the guy and you know, the woman who go to the factory is becoming a thing in the past where, as you know, George, a lot of people are not working full time. And this is something that we've noted over the past 20 years, that underemployment doesn't figure in unemployment figures. So it's very easy to say unemployment is X percentage, but no one is really talking about how people are surviving since a good number of people across the Western world are working part-time hours and mm. struggling to get by. So universal credit sounds like a great equalizer where the corporations that get scot-free and not paying taxes, we know those stories, that somehow people at the lower rungs of the economic system will get enough money to buy food, to buy clothing, to have a roof over their head. That's the thesis, okay? That somehow universal credit, and yes, they've experimented with these systems. I know also in Sweden, I believe they've experimented, or was it Norway, that people can try to participate in a system where they are getting enough to survive on, even if they do nothing, okay? Now, that of course stirs up a great debate between the left and the right. People who say this will, in fact, impede production. People will no longer have the incentive to get up and contribute to society. Now, this isn't a myth. I'm a leftist, but I do know one thing. Castro himself had to introduce an incentive program because he found that this was a problem, right? And it's very important yeah. that those of us on the left can talk about this because we're talking not about political ideology. We're talking about human nature, right? I, I like to put this out this way. I was filming at St. Paul's during the LSX demonstrations because I was living in London while people were protesting at Wall Street. I was there filming people at LSX, right outside of St. Paul's Cathedral. And I interviewed people. They didn't have a great plan at all. In fact, I was really underwhelmed. I thought, if this is the left, we're effed because they kept saying, well, watch this video on YouTube. It's about, and they would go on some conspiracy theory jaunt involving the Rothschilds, you know? And I just thought, okay, aside from this being a, a smidgen anti-Semitic, um, they have no plan. So I began to refer to my work at St. Paul's as working with people in need of a bar of soap because they were really good <laughs> at looking like hippies, but they had nothing akin to what was coming out of the 1960s at all. And we can flaw the 1960s with certain foibles, but that is not one of them. They had political ideals, at least. Even if you didn't agree with them, they had them. What we've seen during the demonstrations against London Stock Exchange and Wall Street were this idealized notion that I was told this by one person I interviewed, but we can stay home and play video games all day. That's the great thing about universal credit. And I said to him, but wow. I don't want to, I like working. Most people like working. And I don't just mean the white collar class of people. I've had this discussion with Chai Valas in Karnataka, India. People like working. No one wants to stay at home and watch telenovelas. Most people just don't because they recognize that yeah. if you watch too much of that, you'll start to get depressed. Like there's something good that comes out of contributing to society on a moral psychological level, let's call it, right? Yeah, I, I, look, I completely agree with what you're saying here. I mean, this is, um, I, um, 
I am a conservative, uh, but and I come from the right side of politics. Uh, I hate uh, the uh, devaluation. Uh, I'm saying even the wrong word there. I hate degenerating uh, man and woman into just an economic unit. Uh, that's so, so. My view of why I'm against social, uh, a, a sorry, a universal basic income system is um, is not based on or uh, harm the economy. Um, you know, you know, I, I know the, the big end of town, the massive corporations, they want it. They want it because they want to be able to replace all of these um, uh, expensive, uh, uh, in, in, you know, error, error making uh, men and women that uh, are basically um, for them just arms and legs that breathe inside their factories with robots and um uh, you know, it'll be cheaper for them in the long term uh, to, to do that, most likely. I do also believe in the old adage, just because you can do it doesn't mean you should do it. Um, you know, there's consequences from that, consequences for all of humanity. And these corporations are also there to serve mankind. Uh, we're not there just to serve them. So, so uh why do it? But they want to do it. And what would they do with the vast bulk of people? Well, they'd put them on some universal basic income where they can just, uh, you know, sit on the couch, uh, eat cheesels and watch uh, Netflix. Well, that that then saps uh, both men and women of their dignity and, and of their sense of being, of their sense of purpose, uh, sense of meaning, because... Um, and again, I'm not talking about someone finding their purpose and just going to some boring, meaningless nine to five job, but but being connected to something greater and serving something greater and having the fruits of your labours appreciated uh, is is you know part of man's history. It, it really is, and it's part of our innermost being, whether we're creatives or whether we're good with our hands uh whether we're good with numbers good with science whatever it might be a way to deploy that creativity uh and talent is something that's innate in in, in man and uh if you take that away um i think you destroy what it is to be human so that's why i'm firmly against a universal basic income system I think it's coming, though. We had a taste of it in Australia uh, where uh, because of this, uh, you know, massive deadly black plague that we call COVID-19 that had an infection fatality rate of 0.27%, uh, we sent everyone home mm -hmm. and we put them on, on a payment called uh, JobKeeper. For those who lost their jobs, and a lot of them did, we put them on a payment called JobSeeker. And, uh, and uh, job seeker, they didn't actually have to seek a job because no one was, uh, was hiring. And they got $750 a week, Australian, to do absolutely nothing. And so there were businesses out there, mainly small businesses, mind you, the big end of town didn't really suffer that much, but the small businesses who were desperate to find people to come and work for them. And uh, they were just told, uh, why would I bother? Because I can get $750 a week just to sit and watch Netflix um, might have sounded good as a bit of a holiday for a while, but if that's your existence forever, I think you're going to really, really change 
the fundamentals. Yes, but it also makes the population flat in the sense of, I saw this in Canada uh, when I moved there to teach at the University of Montreal. I was pretty shocked. I lived in a very poor section of the town. Right next to my home was a building of people on assisted living. It was a social housing type of structure. It was a house that had been converted into, instead of a one family house, it was made into a six single person unit. And these men were all over 60. Some had health crises. Uh, one was dying of cancer. A few of them were alcoholics. I saw them daily. They were very friendly. And I just thought, well, the system here has squashed these men into this kind of ghettoized living space where they're going to, of course, vote for the same political party that will offer them enough money just to survive. It's, it, it seems like its own form of tyranny, but to the left, they might, you know, they, they like to tout this as the answer. I don't think this is a very good answer. It's very inhuman yeah. what I saw, because if you're going to argue for supporting people and these kinds of conditions. And these were men who were in the last stages of their life because of disease and alcoholism. You better give them much more than what I saw for one. Okay. And uh, I think that if we're going to call this socialism, then we've got to do a better job. If you're going to do socialism, that's not mm. the way to do it. But what I did see in Quebec, people would vote for the same parties that would offer these crumbs. And these crumbs were enough to keep people just voting and that's it. And I think that you can actually dismantle social revolution, political passions by these kinds of crumbs, because you're not giving people enough mm. to think, or they won't ever have enough time to research the way to push back on the system that's giving them crumbs, because it's almost just enough to get by, but they have to keep filling out the forms. Just like here, if you want anything about COVID, you have to spend hours looking up how to do something, then you fill it out and then you've just missed the deadline. Oh no, you can't get the bicycle because you that's your, your city has too low a population to get the free bicycle. So you can spin the wheels of bureaucracy, feeding the system that says it's helping you only to find out after months and months of working to get the, the crumbs that you, are entitled to none. And this is something that, I mean, it's a podcast in itself, George, but the bureaucratization of contemporary living, to me, is in itself its own human rights abuse. Because we have computers in most every country in the world, they have information on all of us. Why make people go through a hamster wheel in order to get money when you can just pop that money in their accounts right away, right? But that's not what's happened in France and Italy and the UK, there's mm. these processes that you must go through to get money. But that's insane. Because during lockdown, women, especially, we were expected to reinvent the time space continuum, be able to work full time, homeschooling our kids, all of this, while being in a small apartment space for many of us, I was in that. How on earth did any politician think this was going to happen? Everyone's like, Oh, just homeschool your wait a sec. We've got careers here. They didn't think about that, did they? And all of a sudden, you know, like the, the great no. reset, what the heck is the great reset in relation to what I'm talking about? In fact, because we didn't get there, but I would like to touch upon that because the great reset and digital ID is what these people called conspiracy theorists and so forth. were talking about two and a half years ago. Mm. Yeah. Look, uh, <laughs> 
the difference between a conspiracy theory and reality these days is about six months. Um, and, and, you know, but, but the Great Reset is not something that was dreamt up by a bunch of people sitting around with tinfoil hat on us. Uh, it was a name that was given to a program uh, that was established by the World Economic Forum that Klaus Schwab wrote a book about that talked about basically resetting the international order, uh, the international economic order and the international social order. And yes, they flower it up with a lot of really, really, um, uh, you know, like it's copy, copywritten, uh, 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 sorry, not copywritten, like, like it's, like it's uh, advertising copy um, to make it sound all well and good and completely and utterly benign and beneficial. Um, but at the end of the day, there's always an element of control over the populace, over us, that's actually inherent in what they're proposing. And uh, we've spoken about universal basic income, and I think that, um, and, and other you know, things like that, and I think that one of the absolute and utter dangers that there is with that, rather than the philosophical one of what it means to be human and the, uh, and the dignity that comes with work, is control. Um, if your existence is dependent upon a payment from the government every single week or fortnight or month, and you do the wrong thing, and the government then limits your payment, uh, reduces your payment, um, stops it altogether, well, you're going to be in a world of hurt because there's no work to go to. And if you think that that's crazy, that it could never, ever happen, well, look at Canada, where the, the government actually told the banks to shut down and freeze the bank accounts of, of uh, everyday people who were simply supporting uh, the people that were protesting against uh, the government's um, uh, policies that were depriving liberty. So I, um, I, I think this is coming quicker than we realise. Only about two weeks ago was I removed from the PayPal platform uh, for absolutely no valid reason that I can see. Just, uh, I haven't even been, to date, I haven't been given a reason apart from that I apparently breached one of their rules. I went and looked through the rules and there's not one of them that I breached. Um, you know, I was, uh, I was actually uh, getting my supporters to help uh, fundraise for a new media venture that I'm looking at setting up uh, here in Australia where we're going to have a news aggregator with a bit of original content. And the website isn't even yet set up and they banned me. And the only thing that I think they could hang their hat on is that, uh, uh, well, he's spreading, uh, uh, you know, what we deem uh, to be misinformation or disinformation. Um, well, the website's not set up yet. So how on earth am I spreading anything, let alone misinformation or disinformation? So, uh you know, we already have a situation where uh, where these banks, which is what they are, or financial providers, uh, can, can take money away. And I think that that's going to be something that we'll see increasingly um, from governments and corporations alike. They're going to penalise us because of what we believe in, because of how we behave. I've noticed the clamping down on people's accounts. You just mentioned your PayPal account, but there are many other people who suffered this, no? Oh, look, uh, there's been many people. There's now 
um, you know, <laughs> we accept it. We accept uh, that we're going to go to Facebook jail if we say something. We have a laugh about it. We accept that we're going to be deplatformed off Twitter or something else. Uh, and it's bizarre that it's gotten to the stage where we just accept it so much that it becomes a joke. But I guess it's the only way we can deal with it because these are the new arbiters of public discourse in our in our culture. Um, uh, that is big tech, and uh, they wield so much influence to just uh, uh, you know knock people off their perch like that. Uh, you you could be completely and utterly silenced in this day and age for saying something that is not against the law to say or doing something that is not against the law to do. Um, you could be removed from all forms of social media if they so decide, uh, therefore not given a voice in the new age of the internet. Uh, you could be uh, removed and scrubbed from payment systems, uh, credit cards, uh, PayPal. Um, you know, I, I know even of banks in Australia that have removed transactional banking services from certain businesses because they don't like what that business is doing, even though the activity that they're carrying out is completely and utterly lawful. And that goes from um, uh, sex shops through to gun stores, through to uh, coal mining companies, you know, or, or, uh, or businesses that are associated with coal mining companies. So uh, we're already here, you know, it's not the future, but I think we're just at the beginning. And we start to trace the dots here. We have government in one corner, big tech in another, major media in another, and then you have the whole international franchise of NGOs, charities, they sounds nice, right? Charities, we just wanna help, help themselves. Mm -hmm. And between all of these varying narratives that people naively think media is supposed to be objective. Uh, no, uh, media grew from business, actually. So it was a way of businesses once upon a time to advertise their goods, their wares, and to try and pretend to be objective in giving news. So you've got these four sectors, roughly, there's more because you have private ent enterprise, that's very much connected to all of the above. In fact, there are people who've made arguments, you know, and it's happening everywhere. Why are we having to take a vaccine when the government has made a vow, signed a paper with Pfizer and Moderna who appear on the WEF website, right? These are the people that are running the show, they argue. We're not allowed to sue them because the government has said, we won't allow our citizens to sue you. We'll cover that. Thank you very much. So the government is this kind of pimp for big pharma going in, signing off our rights, our democratic rights to due process with these corporations saying, we good, we will take care of our citizens, thumb on the head. And then they tell us, you get the vaccine or you pay a fine. Now, I'm thinking of doing a performance shortly where I go to do the vaccine. They present me with the paper I'm supposed to sign and say, no, I've been uh, told I have to take the vaccine. Uh, there's no legal requirement for me to sign off on this. Now, legally, they can't give me a vaccine without my signing. But I am thinking of filming this because I think mm -hmm. this is part of the huge problem here is that we have been asked to disavow our rights on every level, every level. And in what world am I now supposed to, under duress, sign a paper saying that I agree 
to my governments having gone into bed with big pharma saying that they are going to force me to take a vaccine while making it impossible for me to have any due recourse to should I get sick? Should I, in fact, say once upon a time later that I was forced into taking it? This is insane. People who were waterboarded have more rights. I'm sorry, George, but this is insane, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, we've entered, obviously, this uh, new era where um, there is just not the premium uh, placed by those who should put the premium on it, and that is the elected officers in democracies on our rights and our freedoms. There just isn't. And uh, that speaks volumes um, because those people that are elected to those offices, uh, to public office, should hold freedoms and liberties that uh, are essential to democracy almost as a sacred trust, but they have betrayed it. They have, they have become traitors uh, to, to that sacred trust. And, uh, you know, how we got here, I don't know, that probably is a topic for, a, uh, uh, for another podcast. The, the, pan the pandemic uh, was but part of the journey. Um, but I think that it's been going on a lot longer than that. And uh, my eyes have, have probably only been really open to that uh, because of the pandemic. So at least I have something to thank for. for it. <laughs> Not much else.